Radio Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide, improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks, welcome to Rose's Radio Voices Saving Lives. I'm Lane Stratton, happy to bring you this podcast today. In the summer of 2010, 2011, what can only be described as an inland tsunami swept through vast areas of southeast Queensland. On that day, 38 lives were lost, six people still have not been accounted for, 200,000 people were impacted and displaced and the bill topped $2.4 billion worth of damage. In a small town called Grantham lived Les Johnson, the subject of our podcast today. His town took the brunt of this flood water, peaking at 7.8 metres, that's nearly 26 foot, and literally devastating this small community. The cleanup took about two and a half years, and in the middle of it all was Les. Married to an amazing woman who's a huge part of his story of survival, he has four grown-up children and nine grandkids. He's a little bit of a self-proclaimed cowboy. He's a teacher. He loves his family and his music, and at 69 years of age, he takes us back over his life and the floods in raw and emotional detail. It's a compelling story of overcoming isolation, devastation, personal struggle and grief. But it is also inspirational, folks, I'll guarantee you that, talking to us of the power of hope and community. Welcome to Rose's Radio today, Les Johnson. Well, good morning, Les. 
Morning, Ryan. How are you? Very well, mate. Very well. Thank you for joining us here on Roses Radio this morning. You're more than welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Tell us about the lead up to Christmas time in 2010 and what happened after that in the town where you live in Grantham in Queensland. Yes, uh, this little town um, is 100 kilometres west of Brisbane in Queensland. Um, prior to uh, the devastating floods in 2011, there were a number of smaller floods that swept through the town. Uh, in fact, there was four that actually swept through the township prior to this um, large flood that happened, or large event. Um, the, I remember the day very, very well, very clearly, because I was um, about to go and get some feed for my cattle, and uh, I went down to where we normally go through the township. I live about three kilometres out of the township, and uh, the Rowie Bridge, uh, where the creek was, was actually flooded. I couldn't get my vehicle through there but there was a little side track that we use when that floods and it floods rather regularly so I went to take my vehicle through there and it was already had water over the top of it and I was a bit worried that I was going to damage my tyres so I decided to take another route into uh, the main township of Gatton which is in the Locker Valley. Uh, When we got there we loaded our truck and the owner of the business said, Les, you better have a look at the, um, the radar. There's a massive storm coming. So I had a look at the radar. It was absolutely blood red over the township of Toowoomba. And as I looked out, I thought, it is so black. The clouds are so intense. I thought, gee, I hope we don't get that. Um, so I went home, um, back through the highway, and uh, came to my property and unloaded and we had a big tree down over one of our fences which uh, was over my neighbour's entrance to his property. So I said to my wife, I'll go down and I'll cut that up so I can get in and out of his property. While I was down there, she came down to me and she said, you better get to the phone quickly because there's a message from our grandson who lived in the township of Grantham. And the message was, nanny, nanny, get to higher ground there's a tidal wave coming. Well, we couldn't understand his hysteria and it was quite hysterical. So I rang my daughter and said, what's going on? And she said, Dad, the water's over the railway bridge in Grantham. And I said, well, that's 3.9 metres. Um, um, I can't believe it. I just came from there not less than an hour ago and the sun was out. And I said, no, no, I, I know you don't um, smoke funny weed and you, you don't take drugs and I know you don't drink, but crikey, what have you been on this afternoon? She said, Dad, I've been on that bridge um, as a human chain taking people across that bridge before they were consumed by the water and the water went a metre over that bridge. So I immediately got on my four-wheel drive and said, look, I'm coming down. And as I came, I'm about three kilometres away as I was coming down, it was like something you see on the newsreel, this massive uh, water as far as I could see in any direction, and uh, it was still coming towards me with house, house roofs, tanks, uh, containers, cars, all sorts of flotsam and jetsam. You just could not imagine the scene. It, I'll never, ever forget what I saw. And uh, 
I realised then if I didn't turn around and go, I was going to be consumed or even isolated in there somewhere. Um, that night, the people were um, uh, chopped out of the uh, out of the area, and I really wasn't sure of uh, the actual devastation because, as you can understand, we had no power; everything had gone out. Uh, the next morning, I went down to feed my uh, daughter's animals. The only way I could get down there was walk the railway line and. The devastation that I, I witnessed was just unimaginable. There were houses completely swept away. Some of them had floated like boats and were down the road uh, hundreds of metres from where they were. Houses were, were just destroyed. Um, so in the, in the uh, next 24 hours, we got together under the Grantham School, which is on higher ground, and we all had no power, so we used barbecues, gas lights, anything we could to to make up a meal, feed ourselves and form some sort of strategy because um, there was no emergency services there. It was just chaos. Um, and as the police came in, someone had to take control of uh, what we were going to do. And my wife uh, put a hand up to be the volunteer coordinator of the recovery effort. And then the assistants began to come in we, um, we couldn't do much because the police had the whole area cordoned off. Um, there were 12 people that had lost their lives in the floods. Uh, at the time, there was more than 300 on the missing list and eventually they were found with relatives um, in recovery centres and um, in other places. Um, two of those people have never been recovered, um, so it's still even to this day, very raw up in uh, Grantham. Um, but the recovery effort was just an amazing uh, exercise. If you saw uh, the number of uh, organisations, people that came together, the Premier set us up a, a massive marquee, fully air-conditioned, um, generators, everything we needed was in that uh, a fully functional commercial kitchen. And at the peak of it, when the volunteers were coming in to help, we were making something like 600 meals a day, feeding morning, noon and night. Um, and I met up with a, a chap that used to come up from Brisbane every day, and he and I would go out in the field um, and feed the volunteers in the field. Um, and people came from all over Australia. Uh, I can remember one incident where a number of university students from Perth turned up, they bought an old bomb car, came up, bought a brand new mower and were just mowing grass um, because over a period of time the grass that did um, come back was just unbelievable and, um, and then they just left their mower there and said see you later and went back to Perth and just like that they were gone and we for those it. who don't know where Perth is, how far is Perth from Grantham? Uh, Estimate. <laughs> 3,000 Three kilometres. 3,500 yeah, kilometres yeah, away. So, yeah. you know, to hire a car and come across yeah. and, and mow some lawns and go back 3,000 yeah. kilometres. And they were there for a couple of weeks. It's incredible spirit, isn't it? But there were people from all over the world just turned up and said, we're here to help, what do we do? Yeah. And um, they camped in tents and caravans and cars. Um, we had um, ablution blocks and showers all set up, so they had somewhere to shower. And um, 
this went on, this recovery effort went on for over two and a half years and um, even to this day there's some people are still um, very psychologically scarred with the, the experiences they had down there. You and your wife were central to that. Your wife was in particular, mm. I suppose. She, mm. she did an amazing job. Yeah, she should absolutely. be recognised for uh, the incredible work that she did. But you were also heavily involved. For how long were you really active in that clean-up of um, Grantham? Well, uh, because my better half was the managing director there, so to speak, uh, yeah, I was there for the two and a half years. But obviously someone had to make a living, um, so I took long service for um, three or four months and was there every day, seven days a week. Um, crikey, from Sparrow Chirp in the morning right up to sometimes 11 o'clock at night and then we'd back, back the next morning do it all again. So my, my role was virtually the dog's body. I, whatever needed to be done around the recovery centre, I would go into the main township, which is Gatton, as I said before, and get a couple of tonne of... Uh, ice and bring it back so we had ice for the drinks so I could take that out in the field um, to stocking all the, the ice boxes we had everywhere around the place so people could come in and have a drink of water or a Gatorade or a flavoured milk or yeah. something that, and a lot of that stuff was paid for by the local Shire Council Wow So I just want to zero in a little bit uh, on you this had an impact on you over that period of time, the intensity of that, and I guess um, you had had a little bit of a, a battle over the years with depression, so this event may have exacerbated that and and, uh, and given you something to really have a, a think about during that period of time. Yeah, most definitely, Lane. Um, it, I think the fewer exhaustion, and not so much the physical exhaustion, but the mental exhaustion and the psychological exhaustion, uh, working with people that have had their lives absolutely torn apart, have lost loved ones, uh, was just very wearing. It just wore you down and I felt that I was going down and down and down and um, I just, uh, I don't know, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't focus. I got to the point where I couldn't focus. Were there significant changes in behaviour that were attached to that as well? Most definitely I had very severe mood swings. Um, grumpy old bugger, so no one wanted to talk to that grumpy old bugger. Um, and uh, so I sort of was starting to feel a bit isolated, and I was actually isolating myself, um, not knowing it at the time, but uh, I, was, I was doing the damage to myself. In, in what ways? As I just said, because people would see this grumpy old bugger and uh, they'll just stay away from you or bite your bloody head off, you know. We'll have to chain him up like a cattle dog, you know, so he doesn't bite anybody. And that was pretty much the feeling around the place um, that, uh, you know, I was fairly aggressive and fairly cranky all the time. And with that came the beginnings of thoughts around suicide? Yes, yes. Um, one of the things in my life is I've been fairly isolated through events that have happened and um, I'm a bit of a loner. But one thing I really, really am uh, very passionate about is my wife and my family and my wife had no time and, and I really cling on to the fact that I have a very loving wife 
Um, at the time, she was so um, consumed with everything she did, um, I was just a part of a life that um, she didn't, um, didn't recognise at the time. But psychologically to me, I think it, it was a trigger that, that set me off on this um, path of, um, what am I looking for, a uh, path of um, loneliness, I guess. Okay. I felt alone. Even in a room of people, I felt alone. I couldn't communicate. And that was one of the things that really started to set me off. I guess I suppose you were in a situation where you were surrounded by psychologists and counsellors yeah, and yeah. people that were there to support the township of Grantham and the surrounding areas. So yeah. there was an opportunity for you to work with people who were qualified in this area. Definitely. Um, there were so many qualified people. It's, it's, it sounds silly, but um, uh, I guess people from my generation... Of baby boomers um, came up in the era of uh, where you were seen and not heard. Uh, if there was an issue or something went wrong, uh, just get on with it and stop your complaining. So it sort of was made, um, that was part of the catalyst for it, was my um, upbringing, I guess, that uh, you didn't want to tell anybody your feelings. It was not so much embarrassment, but I guess it was in some way, shape or form. Sure. But, uh, yeah. Isolation is a theme that has been part of your life. Yes. Even from when you were a small child. You're a 69-year-old yes. man now. But yes. You remember that feeling of isolation way back when you were, you know, a, a young child. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, Lane, the, um, the catalyst all started from day one. Um, my mother was standing in Brisbane, which is the capital of Queensland here in Australia, uh, she was standing in the main CBD uh, waiting for a tram. Uh, we had trams in Brisbane in those days. And um, her water broke, so she was immediately in labour with me. The interesting situation was the fact that I was 13 weeks premature. Uh, in those days, um, there wasn't much of a expectancy to be able to live at, at that sort of... Um, uh, those sort of medical problems and, and they put me in a humidity crib I was stuck in there for six months without any human contact my father wasn't even allowed to touch me and I guess this is where my isolation really psychologically started from um, and then later on in my life uh, my mother I was a sport rotten child of course um, because uh, you know I was the miracle kid miracle baby um, but she passed away when I was about six or seven, and, and once again I was isolated. I, I'd lost my mother. Um, my father went off to Victoria, so I was uh, raised with uh, an uncle and aunt. And then he came back with a new wife, which was um, another shock to me. I was nine then. Um, so he went away for about three years? Two years. Two he was years. Gone. Did he have contact with you during that two-year period? Um... Not really. Telephones were, you know, a luxury in those days. Um, he wrote letters um, to my auntie occasionally. He always sent um, financial support to my auntie for me, so that was taken care of. But, uh, yeah, I had no contact with him. Very. Um, 
no, it was after he was married I actually went down to, they, he sent me down to Melbourne to, to meet the relatives and so on. But uh, So yeah. he arrives back in your life after a few years with a new partner? Yes. Yeah. What was that like for you? Uh, it was pretty, pretty nerve-wracking, you know. Um, some new person comes into your life that is telling you what to do. You don't even know this person. And as a kid it was uh, quite, um, quite hard to deal with. Let's talk a little bit about your teenage years because suicide and suicide ideation haven't only appeared in the last few years for you um, since the floods or thereabouts around the floods. Um, you had a friend. His name was Ron. That's correct, and, yes. Uh, Ron was your teenage friend. Well, actually, we met in grade one. Grade one. Grade one we met. Firm yeah. friends from day one. Firm friends from day one. Terrific. Tell us about Ron. What was he like? Um, I had no other siblings, so he was my my brother. Um, we he was a very quiet person. Um, had a very dry sense of humour. Um, his family. He came from a very large family, and um, I didn't know at the time, but uh, later on I found out his his father was rather abusive to the family, and. Um, he and I used to just disappear for, well, on the weekends we'd disappear the whole day. Um, he had a horse in the back paddock and away we'd go on his horse and our greatest... Um, Was that where you got your nickname? No. That, around about that period of time or no, that came no, later? That's that's way, way, okay. way, way more modern. We'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, our greatest delight used to be going up one of the main uh, highways in Brisbane uh, he'd be riding the horse bareback and I'd be drooped over the back of the horse like a dead cowboy and uh, <laughs> with my arms just dangling and the passers-by would stop to see if I, I'd actually passed away. So we thought that was funny as kids. But uh, uh, we'd go and hire horses and just ride all day. And, um, yeah, and uh, we became very, very close until um, we both got married um, he married um, an older woman with uh, one teenage son and a, and a younger sister, and the marriage uh, didn't really work out. And uh, in the 60s, suicide was um, a, a, crime, a, criminal, a criminal act. So if you were, um, didn't take your own life and survived, you'd, you'd be charged with a criminal offence. What I didn't know is... Um, Ron actually attempted suicide. I, I heard about that. I didn't know why, and we didn't really talk about it. Um, but I assume that he was charged with the offence because shortly after that he did take his own life. And How old was he when that happened? He would have been about 21. 21. Um, as I said, we were both just married and... Um, it was, uh, he had a small, he had a baby to the lady and um, it went downhill from then on. So I think he was only married a couple of years. It's still emotional for you now yes. to talk about the memory of Ron. Yes. Is that another kind of moment of isolation for you or is it just that, you know, there's another emotion that sits in there that, that you... 
you know, that that, uh, that brings out this sort of reaction? I think in more recent times, as I've become more aware of depression and suicide, I, I sort of think in my own mind what we could have perhaps done in those days to prevent that. And um, I... You know, you'll never find the answer, but um, it's it's sort of become more prevalent when we're thinking about it in that way. I, I I think I've got over the sadness part of it, but I still think back to I wish we could have done something. Yeah, which is really the story of uh, how you think about depression and suicide now. So I want to take you back to um, uh, that period after the floods occurred. So. You describe yourself as being exhausted emotionally, uh, physically, um, and then uh, and recognizing within yourself that uh, you were isolating yourself and there wasn't something quite right. You know, you, you I think you mentioned you have a thirty odd year battle with depression, mm. um, so clearly there was something going on. But you didn't reach out. Who did reach out, and what were the circumstances around that? Well, circumstances around that were we come home from the recovery centre one night, we were both exhausted and uh, I, I guess I'd been uh, drinking alcohol um, and my alcohol drinking didn't escalate all that much but I think I just had, had too much alcohol and I just had a, a, brain, a brain explosion and um, went right off my brain and for the first time... In my angry? Life, angry, very angry. Right. Everything, everything. I was angry about everything in the world. For the first time in my life, my wife left me, and that sort of she uh, felt unsafe. She felt unsafe because I was really at the point of suicidal. How that, did that feel for you at that moment? That someone so close to you was scared of you. I, I didn't think about it at the time, right. but when I had time, the cold hard light of the morning, and when I reflected on what I'd done and what I'd said, I just felt so terrible about it, so embarrassed that how could I do something like this? My wife returned uh, that morning and said, look, mate, you're going to the doctor right now. And um, in my state, I was feeling very um, timid and... Remorseful. And remorseful, very remorseful. <laughs> and um, she sort of, like a naughty schoolboy, got hold of Grabbed my ear and ear. dragged me down to the quack and who said to me, Les, what's going on? What's wrong? And, you know, I grumbled about a pimple on my backside or something. No, I'm, I'm OK, Doc. And my wife said, no, he's not, and then explained the circumstances why I was there. And the doctor said, yeah, well, that's typical bloody male. Um, you come down and whinge about pimple on your bum, but you don't tell me the real story. Yeah. So he said, uh, firstly, we'll put you on antidepressants. Now, I've been on antidepressants a couple of times in my life, um, and I found they didn't work for me, but I thought I'd give it a shot anyway. He said, now, I'm also going to um, send you to the local shrink or psychologist, and if you don't get on with him, well, we'll move you on to someone you do. Well, I said to him, look, mate, uh, I know I'm a lunatic, but uh, I don't need a bloke to tell me that. Um, why are you sending me there? He said, J- just just go. So just to give insight here, how hmm. close were you in, ter- in terms of your thinking around suicide 
and the whole suicide ideation thing. How close were you to making a decision before you finally got to see someone who could help you? Well, it, it, it was, a, as you can imagine, it was a gradual build-up and it was like a, a pressure cooker exploding. It was a gradual build-up and as the pressure was, uh, it was like being in a room where all the walls were closing in around you and couldn't see a way out. There's no way out and life's not going to get any better. It's just going to get worse. And you get into this down, downhill or downward spiral thinking and it just uh, it just keeps going down and down and down. So I would have been days, if not hours, away from uh, trying to take my own life. What were you thinking? In which way, uh, well, What was what was going on with your thought processes? Well, the thought process was pretty cloudy. Now I look back and think, crikey, did I really think like that? Um, and think like what? Did you think that you know people would be better off without you? That you know, I'm just a grumpy old man. Yes. Uh, you know, like what? What were you thinking? Yes, uh, self worth had sort of diminished. Yeah, um, I'm no good to anybody. You know, I can't. I can't function anymore. And and the brain was not functioning correctly. Uh, and I just, uh, you know, they talk about the, the, the black hole and the black dog, and it's, it's most definitely that black dog had me by the leg and he was dragging me down there. Yeah. But I was dragging myself down there. And uh, until you've been down that low and thinking you're going to uh, take your own life, um, you can't really understand. No. So you walked into the psychologist's office. Mm. What happened after that? Uh, I was very, uh, very nervous of going there because I knew he was going to ask me some pretty embarrassing questions. Um, so uh, when I walked in the door, uh, you know, he introduced himself, and you know, a funny thing happened. We sort of made eye contact, and you know, when you meet somebody from the first time, you you have all these reservations, and you ha- and you sort of analyse somebody but he and I just clicked the minute we minute I walked in that door for some reason there was a reason behind he and I clicked and he sat sat me down and gradually um, very patiently started to um, ask me questions which he let me go on and I turned into a blithering idiot for an hour um, I must have used a box of tissues up. Um, I was a psychological wreck when I left his office that that afternoon. In fact, I I felt like I'd just run a marathon. I could hardly drive my car. I was so exhausted. Mm. The emotion had just poured out of me. Mm. So we we connected for weekly visits and then fortnightly and then monthly and three-monthly and so on. What would you say to someone who might be sitting listening to this podcast who hasn't reached out, who hasn't taken that step? Well, it was your wife, I suppose, that it took was. that initial step, which, yes. is, uh, which is amazing. But what would you say to them? Well, it's very hard to put yourself in someone else's position. And for me, I guess... 
it never would have been resolved unless my wife had intervened and I'd absolutely made a fool of myself in the first place uh, and then felt the remorse for it. Um, for someone that's listening to this and, and, and uh, I know there's so much help out there but it's very, very hard to reach out when you're in someone else's shoes and, uh, and say to them, look, this is how you do it because it works differently for different people. Um, my primary contact was my GP. Um, I have been fortunate enough to talk to people that I've been able to give um, directions to help. So um, I really don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Lane, I think everything's different. Everybody's different. One of the things that you do now is you take it upon yourself to notice what's happening around you and to notice other people. You had an experience in a high school recently? Yeah, very recently, just before Christmas. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a te- I'm a TAFE teacher and I, I go out to um, deliver training in high schools at some of the teachers there. And just before I ran the class, I was sitting down as I normally do and talked to the different uh, participants and uh, just get a background of where they are, what they're doing, what sort of experience and knowledge they have. And I sat down next to this guy and I said, how are you going, mate? And he said, um, oh, not too bad. I'm doing it a bit tough at the moment. I said, oh, really? Um, what's happening? And he started to tell me of his recent divorce, um, his battle with um, uh, court battles and financial problems and problems with access to his children and he was you could see he was really down and uh, I spoke to him for a little while and listened to what he had to say and offered him some um, support through um, some of these agencies that are available and uh, which he he took on board and uh, I've, I've had emails from him recently as, as recent as this week to say yeah I'm going good mate um, so it's really good to see that um, just by talking to him, uh, I, I could see in, in his face that it was helping him. If someone had reached out to you in the same way, just sat down next to Cranky Les yeah. uh, and said, hey, buddy, what's what's going on? Would you have been that open with how you were feeling? Depends who it was. Um, I, I had a couple of... Um, friends that would ring me every now and again and just uh, business people that I, uh, I was associated with and uh, just ring up and say, hey, go on, mate, let's just chew the fat, let's go and have a coffee. And yeah. now I look back, it was this guy's a way of keeping an eye on me, you know, and he, he actually recognised it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he's passed away, um, had a heart, massive heart attack, but... Uh, yeah, he was really good at it. He was one of my bosses once, and um, he uh, he and I probably had a fairly good relationship. I suppose given that you are through this experience yes. now and you've come out the other side, some people might think, well, that's the end of the potential struggle, but you, you do struggle with your thought processes and your emotions still to this day. What's changed for you in terms of just your ability to be able to deal with those? The main thing that that I found with going and seeing the psychologist, he's given me, as he calls, the tools to be able to to deal with it. 
the emotional problems and the psychological problems. Um, and now I, I can I, I understand myself better than before I went to see him. And I can now understand when I'm sort of slipping into a bit of a depressive state. Um, so I've got the, the tools in which I can deal with it and um, I deal with it rather adequately now. That's terrific news. A couple of closing questions we always ask on Rose's Radio. What do we need to change in the way that society deals with suicide? I think that the biggest step's been the decriminalisation of suicide. But people in my generation have still got that closed-off um, mentality about suicide um, and about its ramifications. Uh, I think it's it's educating the people that, you know, um, mental well-being, as I call it, uh, mental fitness. As Our, opposed to mental illness. Me- mental illness, What's yeah. the differentiation between those two? Well, to me, when I hear someone mentally ill, when I was a kid, you were stuck in a lunatic asylum. And uh, that stigma seems to still stick to this day, that if you say mental illness, that you're a total crazy person. And I think all of us have struggled with some sort of um, mental uh, stress from time to time. Um, It's just that some of us um, get more stressed than others. And the brain controls everything we do. So if your brain's not fit and healthy, um, you're going to have some problems. So I'd like to see that sort of thing um, made more aware and people be more aware that just because you've got uh, a mental... You're not mentally fit, that you're not a crazy person. Yeah, for sure. A message... Uh, what would be your key message given all of your experience and everything you've been through from the time you were a young boy right through to 69 years of age and all of the things that you've grappled with? What would be the message that you want to put out to those who might be grappling with this issue right now? It's very hard to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, but I'd like to say that, gee, for me... That help was there that I couldn't I couldn't reach out for, but try your very damnedest to reach out to somebody. You know, if your your best friend, your wife, your work colleague, your boss, your GP, somebody, because um, help is there. And for me, it took a long time, but once the help was there, it still took a long time. But um, I'm very grateful that it, uh, it I was able to get that help. Les, thank you for being with us on Rose's Radio today. Uh, Your story is interesting, it's informative and it's inspirational. Uh, Our thanks to your wife, who was sensible enough to grab you by the ear and whisk you down to the doctors because we get the privilege now of sitting here and having this conversation with you and we're grateful for the insights and the wisdom and the experience that you bring to us. I know that you are a tireless worker in this particular area. You're always looking out for people who are around you and that's what we want people to do. And uh, we hope that your work in the suicide prevention area continues. Uh, And thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Lane. It's been been my pleasure. It's just the hurt that you hide
In conclusion, we remember those we have lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives. We need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning. If you or someone that you know needs support, you should contact Lifeline, a phone and online crisis support network. The Suicide Callback Service, which provides professional counselling for those who are affected by suicide. Men's Line Australia, or the Kids Helpline, which works with children and teenagers from age 5 to 25, offering phone, web and email counselling and information for parents. In the event that you might like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean and their Voices of Insight Speakers Hub through speaking engagements in the local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean.com.au or 1300-411-461. Hey, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience.